My name's Mark, if I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's Easter, it's time to be excited. I'm excited to be sharing God's word with you tonight. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to have a think about a passage of scripture that's going to shed some light on this topic of Jesus' resurrection. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you submitted yourself willingly to death, even death on a cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you went there in our place that you took the punishment that we deserved and that you drank the cup of God's wrath that should have been poured out on us. Thank you, Jesus, as you cried out on that cross, it is finished. Thank you that your work of saving us is complete. Thank you so much for Good Friday. And thank you so much, Jesus, for Easter Sunday. (laughs) Thank you that we get to gather here today and to look back and to remember the incredible news that you did not stay dead, but that you rose again. Oh God, as we uh, think about this topic today, it's almost too big to comprehend. And so please help us this evening by your spirit uh, to understand afresh just what Jesus has done for us. Give us a fresh appreciation for the implications of the resurrection and help us to live from tonight in newness of life with faith in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We ask for his sake. Amen. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I loved the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Do you know that story? Uh, I used to watch the BBC miniseries, if any of you have seen that. It is terrible. I loved it as a kid. I went back and watched it as an adult, and it's garbage. Don't go back and watch it. It's so disappointing. Leave your childhood memories alone. Uh, but I have been rereading the books on, actually, the suggestion of a few people from 6pm. Dan Page being one of them suggested I go back, read them all again. I'm loving reading the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a wonderful thing. If you don't know the this, this story of the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, basically it's the story of four siblings who discover in a magical wardrobe a gateway into this amazing land called Narnia. And in this land of Narnia, there's this amazing scene towards the beginning of the story where the four siblings enter into the land together for the first time, and they're walking through this forest of fir trees. And it's nighttime, and it's quiet, and it's still. And there's snow gently falling from the sky. And as they make their way through these trees into this clearing, there is a lone lamp post standing in the middle of this forest, shining this amazing warm light on them. It's this magical scene, and it's a scene that captured my imagination as a child. This land that these children go to where it is perpetually winter. We find out, actually, that the land of Narnia has been in winter for a century before the children arrive. And as a kid, that really appealed to me. I grew up in England. It was cold and wet and grey, and I loved that. And so this prospect of finding a land in the wardrobe upstairs where I could live in perpetual winter, that was like heaven to me. And I thought, well, this is great. Who wouldn't want to go to Narnia and to live in a land where it's like perpetually winter? You know, you wouldn't need to go anywhere else, right? Anybody with me on that? I I tested this this morning. I reckon there's like less than 10% of people who are with me in that boat choosing winter over summer. But if you're one of them, God bless you. Now, the problem with that was that if you know the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the point was not that you were supposed to fall in love with this winter wonderland of Narnia, uh, because the reality in Narnia was that, if you remember, the, the White Witch had subjected Narnia to a cruel winter, a permanent winter that was actually stifling life in Narnia. And one of the main characters in the story, they say that in Narnia, it is always winter, but never Christmas, right? Narnia never reaches spring. That's 
what's going on in Narnia. And so all of that new life and those new plants, those new baby animals, all that stuff that happens in spring doesn't happen in Narnia. Life is suppressed in Narnia. Winter is in opposition to life, right? Now, I've got a question for you this evening. Uh, what season are we in? Anybody know? You, uh, it's April Fool's, okay, 1st of April, so don't be fooled tonight. You might make the mistake of thinking after today that we're still in summer, this stupid, ridiculous weather. We're not still in summer. You might make the mistake of thinking, well, there's no autumn leaves around, but I know that we are still in autumn, so it should, should be autumn. No, I'm telling you tonight, you and I are in a season of winter. April 1st, 2018, we're living in winter. Not a literal winter, sadly, you know, to my disappointment, we are living in a a kind of a metaphorical winter, a spiritual winter, if you like. We're living in a season in this world that is just like Narnia. It's a season that is designed to suppress life. It's a season that makes life hard, makes opposition to life, if you like. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the cycle that takes place in this world of death and decay, That is the perpetual season that we are living in, a season of death and decay. That is, in fact, what that metaphor of the winter in Narnia was actually designed to teach the reader, that that's what this world is like. You're stuck living in a world that is trying to suppress life. That's just the world that we live in. Now, look, that's a truth which I'm guessing is probably not on the forefront of any of our minds as we came to church today. We live in a beautiful part of the world. Gorgeous hot weather if you're into that sort of thing. Today is a happy day. It's Easter. You probably celebrated with your family. You probably overate lots of chocolate and hot cross buns. It's a happy day today. You're probably not thinking about this reality. But it is a reality, isn't it? This world is stuck in a state of winter, a state of death and decay. Uh, I was preaching at church this morning, and after the 8.30 service, my family, we come to the 10.30 service here in the morning. My daughter ran up to me after she arrived at church, and she was so happy. She had in her hand, it's sort of shriveled up a little bit now, uh, a little flower. It was just a dandelion, but, you know, the thought that counts. And she ran up to me, and she said, Daddy, this is for you. She wanted to give me this flower. It was much more beautiful this morning before Joel crushed it with his laptop. But uh, <laughs> she gave me this flower, and... You know, we are like this flower, probably something a little bit nicer than this, but life in this world is beautiful, it's vibrant, it's glorious in its own kind of way, but it's temporary, isn't it? Because a flower like this is cut off from its source of life. A flower like this is perishing, it's destined for the rubbish heap. We, you see, and everything else in this world are slowly but surely heading towards death. And there's nothing that we can do about that. That's how this world rolls. You know that? This state of winter that we are living in. Plants wither, beauty fades, strength departs, and death wins. Death always wins. And as long as death wins, it will always be winter in this world. That's the cold, hard truth, unfortunately. That's part of being human and living in this world. Being a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, as the Chronicles of Narnia will put it, is that life always gives way to death. Life always gives way to death. If you don't know that, welcome to the human race. Now, that's a, that's a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? That's not something that we like to think about. It's probably why we don't think about that reality 
all that often. Because isn't it true that there is something inside each one of us that when we think about that, we feel an outrage. We feel somewhere deep in our gut that death is an unwelcome intruder in this life. We know that. We know that death is not supposed to be our final destiny, don't we? This reality that one day each one of us is going to be snuffed out like a candle, that does not sit easily with us, does it? And I'll tell you why that is. I'll explain to you if you haven't realized that already. It's because each one of us is built, was designed by God to desire permanence. We're built by God to desire permanence, to be permanent people, not temporary people. We desire permanence in everything that we do. So we want our accomplishments in this life, for instance, to last We want to make our mark on the world. We don't want to be forgotten. We don't want to think that all our hard work was for nothing in this life and it's all going to be washed away when we're gone. Uh, We want life in this world to last and for it to be rich and full and vibrant. We don't want to grow weak and old and sick as we age, do we? We desire permanent life. We desire permanent love too. Every single one of us here desires a love relationship with somebody that will never end. We don't want a love that will get cut off and cut short by sickness, death, or disease. We desire permanence. You tracking with this? And friends, we have those desires, don't we? That's true. But it's also true that for every one of us, those desires are unmet. They are unmet desires because the world that we're living in is perpetually winter. Death always wins. And it means that everything that we do is temporary. I've got some food for thought for you tonight as we sort of set that as the backdrop for what we're going to talk about. Uh, And C.S. Lewis, in another one of his books, has quite a famous quote. I want to read it to you. It'll come up on the screen. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's a famous quote. You might have heard it before. This is uh, famous for good reason. It's simple, but it is incredibly profound. Uh, Let me just unpack it a little bit for you. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is that if you feel a desire for, let's say, hunger, you're hungry, you desire food, what that desire teaches you is that there probably is such a thing as food. It doesn't teach you that you're going to get food. It's not a promise of that. It doesn't teach you where to find food. It just teaches you that food probably exists, right? You understand? If you have a desire within you for intimacy and relationship with somebody, that suggests that there is such a thing as love. There is such a thing that will meet that desire in your heart, right? The point that he's making is that if you find a lock, then you can pretty reasonably assume that there is a key to fit that lock, to unlock it, to meet it, right? You understand? And so the point for us is that if we feel these desires, these deep desires within us for life that lasts, if we desire that death not be the end, that it not have the final word, then that at least suggests to us that maybe there is such a life out there that that exists. Maybe it is possible that those desires that we have could be met. Maybe permanence is possible. Maybe we could find a life that has meaning in the here and now. Maybe we could find a life that is full and rich and has purpose. Maybe we could find a life where we experience love that does last into eternity. Maybe that exists. That's the point that C.S. Lewis is making. So, here's where we get to Easter. (laughs) Here is where the Bible speaks directly into 
our situation. And so what I want to do with you is I want to read three verses of scripture from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in ancient Corinth. It's come up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22. Let's have a read. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The message of Easter is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. After his death on the cross on Good Friday, after his burial in that tomb, three days later on Easter Sunday, Jesus walks out of that tomb alive and well. And so the message of Easter is that for Jesus Christ, death was not the end. Death was a pit stop. The message of Easter is that for Jesus Christ, death didn't have the last word. He had the last word. Do you see the significance of this for us, for people like us who are living in a temporary kind of situation? Jesus comes along on Easter Sunday and he proves to us that our desires for permanence might actually be able to be met. Our longing for life that lasts is designed to point us towards Easter, to point us towards the one whose life lasts. He is the one that we have been longing for. He is the key that unlocks that lock within us. He's the one who demonstrates that permanence is possible. You see, that's what the resurrection does. It, it, it demonstrates to us that death will not always win. God wins. Jesus is the proof, right? Those dark days of Narnia where it's always winter but never Christmas, they are fast coming to an end. Because as the story goes, Aslan is off the stone table. And now everywhere he walks and steps his feet, he brings spring with him. Jesus' resurrection is the announcement that life has triumphed over death. Life has triumphed over death. That is the best news that you will ever hear. I guarantee you this, you will never in your life hear any news that is as good for you as that news. Life triumphs over death. Have you understood that news? The implications of Jesus' resurrection. Can I say to you that the Bible writers want you to be in no doubt about that? The Bible writers want you to be certain about the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Look at that first sentence there. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. That's the key to this whole passage. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. A better translation of that first few words would actually be, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, you see, the the first followers of Jesus who went around preaching this message that their Messiah had been crucified, buried, and three days later rose from the grave, they were preaching facts. They were not preaching what they hoped to be true. They were not preaching what they desired to be true. They were preaching the truth. They were preaching historical facts. That's the point here. This really happened. Historians will tell you that there is overwhelming evidence to teach you that Jesus rose from the dead. He really did die on the cross. He was murdered by a gang of executioners. There is no doubt about that. He did not faint and then get resuscitated three days later. He died. 
He really did leave that tomb. Nobody came in and took his body. It was to nobody's advantage to hide Jesus' body. It was never never found, never reproduced. Jesus left that tomb alive. It's a fact. Jesus did really appear to people in the flesh. Hundreds of people at once saw him at the same time, talked to him, interacted with him, touched him. Jesus really did come back to life. And his followers died for that claim. They died holding firm to their their belief that their Messiah was alive again. They did not make it up. It is historical fact. It's not a subjective opinion. It's not a fairy tale. It's not theoretical. It's a historical event. And look, some of you here are probably here tonight thinking, well, look, that's just, that's, that can't be true. There must be some other explanation because resurrection runs contrary to the laws of nature. We know that. We're scientific. We understand resurrection can't happen. It's physically impossible. I'll agree with you. Yes, it is physically impossible. It does contravene the laws of nature. But don't you think it's possible that the God who made those laws of nature reversed them when he came to his beloved son lying there in the grave? That is what the evidence is teaching us. Jesus really did rise from the grave. Look, for me, as, as I was a young man investigating the claims of, of Jesus, it was the evidence, the historical evidence about the reality of Jesus coming back to life that was the clincher for me. I couldn't escape the truth that I was coming up against. Jesus must have been raised from the, from the dead. When you eliminate all other possible explanations, that is the only one that's left. And so for me, as an 18-year-old man, I knew that I couldn't run from this truth anymore. I couldn't hold it at arm's length and dismiss it as a fairy tale. It was a historical fact that I had to respond to. And it changed everything for me. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Now, what do you think about those facts? Have you looked at the facts before? Have you considered them? What do you make of them? I don't know all the people in this room, and so I don't know what you make of this fact of Jesus' resurrection. But can I put it to you that if, an, if you walk out of here with no other ideas about Easter, can I, can I suggest it would be worth your time to investigate the facts of Jesus' resurrection? Because Christianity stands or falls on this claim. It stands or falls. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then you should not bother coming to church. You shouldn't be here. You've wasted your evening. I'm sorry to tell you that. If, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then get lost. But if this is true, if Jesus came back to life and he lives today to never die, then your life today, your death in the future, and your eternity will never be the same again. So why not test it for yourself? Why not investigate the facts? We would love to help you find answers to those questions if you've got them. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And look, what that means for us here and now, it's it's spelled out there in that second sentence there on the second line. So this says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that phrase, the first fruits, that's a word we don't really use in our modern vocabulary because we're not an agricultural society, but ancient Israel was. Now what that idea of the first fruits was, was that if you were a farmer and suddenly it became spring and your crops started to grow and produce fruit, then when you went out to harvest them, whatever the first portion of that harvest was, was your first fruits. And instead of eating them yourself and feeding them to your hungry family, you would take that, that beginning of the crop and you'd take it to the temple and you would offer it as a sacrifice to God. 
And in doing that, you would demonstrate that you trusted God to provide the rest of the crop. You trusted him that here's all that I have, God. I know that the rest is coming. I'll wait for you to deliver it for me. And here it says that Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first fruits of a whole new harvest. Now, the question is, what's the harvest that Jesus is the first fruits of? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's, it's a resurrection harvest. Jesus is the first taste of a harvest of resurrection that's going to come. A whole lot more resurrection that is going to come. See what it says there? For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, Jesus' resurrection, in one sense, it was special. But in another sense, it actually wasn't a one-off anomaly. Jesus' resurrection was not some outlier. What Jesus' resurrection was, was a foretaste. It was a sneak preview of the rest of the harvest of resurrection that is going to come. It's a sneak preview of what the future holds for each one of us. You see, Jesus has risen from the grave and now he has resurrection life to give to people so that in the future all will be raised. That's what this passage is saying to us. The first fruits, it shows us that there is more coming, but it does something else as well. It actually shows us what the rest of the harvest is supposed to look like, right? So imagine you're a farmer, you go out, you get your first fruits from your fields, and what is it? Oh, it's some apples, I take it to the temple, I offer it to God. I don't go home and I sit there and scratch my beard and think, gee, I wonder what the rest of my harvest is going to be this year. Maybe it'll be corn, who knows? You don't ask that question, do you? You know what it is because you've seen the first fruits. It's apples, you know what it's going to be like. Jesus' resurrection does the same thing for us, right? It is the example of what our resurrection is going to be like. Jesus is God's new humanity. Humanity 2.0. Humanity without all of the, the sinfulness and the stain and the brokenness and the bondage to death and decay that we experience living in this world. Jesus is the example of what God is doing. And so you look to Jesus and you see what your future will look like. Jesus is the first fruits he offers resurrection life you know a lot of people often think that christianity is this kind of uh, moral philosophy that tells you that if you're just good enough then eventually when you die you'll be rewarded with eternal life you'll rise from the grave you'll live with god forever strumming harps on a cloud or something that's what a lot of people think that christianity is like it's this pie in the sky when you die kind of a promise for people who endure through this life. Now, look, there, there's a shred of truth in that. At best, it's a half-truth. Christians do believe, of course, that when we die, we will be given eternal life. We will live with God in heaven forever. Christians believe that, but we believe a whole lot more than that as well. We believe that the resurrection life that Jesus offers to people is a life that begins now. It begins this side of death. It doesn't wait to be delivered to us when we die. It begins Today, this resurrection life that Jesus, the risen king, offers to us is breaking into people's lives even now, even today. It is like a beam of sunlight breaking through a cloudy sky. What happens as people come to Jesus and they receive this resurrection life, this resurrection power that he offers, is that their winter, their perpetual winter, starts to be transformed into an endless spring. You see? 
winter leaves, spring arrives, and with it comes new life, comes transformation. And it's beautiful to see. Have you seen the resurrection life of Jesus break into someone's life and bring freshness and new life? It is marvelous to see. I tell you what, you see this kind of resurrection life here and now as kind of like these little shoots that pop out of the ground in people's lives as the kind of the despair and the hopelessness of living in a world where death is inevitable is replaced by hopefulness, by optimism, and by looking forward to a better day in the future. That is a day of spring. That is what resurrection life does to us here and now. Resurrection life transforms bitter and hateful people into loving and peaceful people. That is what Jesus' resurrection life does for us here. Uh, Jesus' resurrection life, it gets rid of that kind of, that sense of groaning and, and searching for something that will fulfill you, that categorizes what it li- is to be living in winter. It gets rid of that whole old way of life and it replaces it with joy and satisfaction and contentment that characterizes eternal life in this never-ending spring. Have you seen that kind of resurrection life taking place in people's lives around you? Has that kind of resurrection life taken foot in your life? It's taking root all around us and it is magnificent. And friends, the good news of Easter, as if that wasn't good enough, is that this new resurrection life is available right now for the low, low price of free. It's free. Can you believe that? What an offer is this? Eternal life in the future, fullness of life now. And Jesus says, you can have it for free. No strings attached. You don't have to do anything. Friends, we should be lining up to grab this kind of life. We should be scrambling to get to the front of the queue to receive this gift from Jesus, right? You know, since since that first Easter day, all those years ago, when Jesus broke free from death and walked out of the tomb... That is exactly what has been happening in the lives of countless people all over the world for two millennia. A multitude of people have gathered around Jesus and have said yes to life. Yes to life. Life now and life forever. Life free from death, free from decay, free from sin and full of God. Full of God's never-ending goodness. A multitude of people have accepted that life from Jesus So the final question for you tonight as I finish is, is, well, how do you get that life? If you want that resurrection life that Jesus offers you this Easter, how do you get it? Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. That's the phrase. That's the answer. It comes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. You will not find it anywhere else. Jesus is like our champion. who enters into this battle for us, who defeats sin and death, who breaks our bondage from decay, who rises in victory, and then who invites us to come and share in his spoils of war. That is what Jesus has done. And so if you want to receive that new life that Jesus has made available, you've got to come to him. You've got to go through Jesus. You've got to come to God in faith and ask that Jesus makes you alive, that he takes your sin upon his shoulders, that his death becomes your death, that his resurrection be the first fruits of your resurrection. And God will be glad to give that gift to you. Friends, Jesus has risen. 
He has conquered death. He has broken the grip and the stranglehold of winter on this world, and he's offering you life. That's the good news of Easter. And so please grab hold of this life that he's offering. Be a part of that resurrection harvest and rejoice because life is yours. It's yours now and forevermore through your Savior, Jesus. Let's pray together. A loving and merciful God, we cannot get our heads around your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. God, that you would be pleased to die for us, to rise on our behalf and to give freely new resurrection life to unworthy people such as us. God, you are good. And we thank you so much for the grace and the mercy and the life and the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, please would you turn all of our hearts here tonight towards the Lord Jesus in faith. We ask for his sake and in his name. Amen.